So we finished our last full day of the retreat, and it is a reasonable thing to consider how do you integrate the Brahma-viharas into daily life. So here we are in a highly specialized situation, a silent retreat environment where we have a beautiful space, lovely food that's offered, an incredibly quiet environment. We don't have cell phones to answer and there's no computers that we're dealing with. There's no traffic lights and people to talk to other than ourselves. You know, the kind of complexity that we're navigating is much, 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 much less than what a normal daily life circumstance is. And also we have hours of meditation a day, which is also, for most people, rather not the norm. You know, for most people it's, it's a push to get 30 minutes in in the morning and the evening time. Because the complexity of life is such that it just bombards one and it's hard to find time or space or the inclination or the energy for meditation practice when you're either pressurized or exhausted or you've got deadlines or you've got children or parents to look after. So, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a sensible question. How do you bring the Brahma-Vahara practice into daily life? It's not an irrelevant question, because if this practice is not something that we can carry forward into our daily life, then what's the point? You know, if this is only possible when we come here, you know, what's the point? So if we step back a little bit and have a look again at some of the other things that support our practice... You know, remember when we started the retreat, we started with taking the refuges and the precepts. And rather than this being some kind of a religious ritual, it's meant to be an opportunity to connect with these principles, which are guiding principles that we can use and have access to at any point in our life. So when we look at the refuges, you know, we're looking at the quality of the mind that knows, you know, that which knows. When we look at the what the refuge of the of the Buddha, it's the, that awakened mind which knows. And so, you know, we can see that, you know, if we're navigating complexity or if we're feeling overwhelmed or we're feeling pressurized or we're having to deal with children or we're having to make dinner or wash dishes or clean the toilet or take out the garbage, we still can know what we're doing. So that quality of knowing is present even if what we are knowing may not be that still and concentrated or refined. So that's transportable. You know, those refuges is transportable. And the refuge of the Dhamma is the refuge of the truth of the way things are. And the truth of the way things are is not the way we think it should be. 
as infuriating as that is, it is the truth. It's not the way we think it should be. It is the way it is. So we can be sitting down for a meditation practice and think, I'm supposed to be still and calm and peaceful and energetic, and I feel depressed and miserable, and I can hardly sit up straight because I've got no energy. But that's the truth of the way it is. And that's where we need to practice. Right there. Not with some idea of how it is. So the Buddha didn't wake up to how it should be. He woke up to how it is. And so that is also a portable and transportable kind of way of reflecting on the practice. What's actually happening right now? And I have found that a very humbling practice because I never cease to be amazed at how caught out I get between imposing my ideas on things and the reality of what's actually happening. So it requires a kind of ruthless honesty. Really checking out what is going on right now. And then the other thing that one needs to check out is, well, how am I relating to it? Because one can be in a beautiful place, but surrounded by all of your favorite people and be miserable as sin. (laughs) Because there's pushing and clinging and fear and aversion and worry and anxiety and, you know, there's some lack of ability to be with things as they are. There's some pushing or resisting or wanting. So in addition to checking out what are the objects, you know, what one is feeling, how is one relating to how one's feeling? You know, so there could be a mood of sadness and some incredible aversion, not being able to tolerate it. And the aversion to the sadness creates an internal conflict which sets one up into a spin. I mean, there's nothing wrong with feeling sad. But if it's not tolerated, it causes a chaos. You know, so that's also the practice of the truth of the way things are, what's actually happening right now, and how is one relating to it. The refuge of Sangha, you know, for me, I just have so enjoyed this retreat in terms of spending time with each of you. It's been so lovely for me. And it probably hasn't been apparent, but it has been quite an extraordinary process that I've gone through on this retreat. You know, just enormous challenge that I was navigating internally. But I found the company of everybody and the practice of everybody to be tremendously supportive. So having friends that you can practice together with is supportive. You know, having routines, having structure, having opportunities to practice is supportive. You know, some people get anxious around form or ritual because it feels a little bit like they're doing it to me, you know. And so the kind of anxiety around... I mean, certainly there's plenty of good reasons to feel uh, apprehensive about what institutionalized religion can do. You know, we don't have a lot of... of, um, inspiring examples that really allow us to relax and feel faith, you know. So I can completely understand that. But I can also see that if we can navigate the narrow path of 
picking stuff up in a way that actually is meaningful. You know, look at the effect of what happens when there's a shrine. You know, when you light a candle or an incense or put a flower. You know, what what does that do to your to your mind? Or when you have a space where, you know, we don't have letters and emails and notes and lists and laundry lists and shopping lists, but it's just for practice. You know, how that supports a person coming in and just relaxing and attending to what's here. Yeah. So without turning a kind of it into a, you know, thou shalt, you know, thou shalt have a shrine and bow. <laughs> You know, reflecting on what does it do when when you come into a space that's beautiful, that's cared for. You know, does it does it incline the mind towards ease, towards relaxation, and what what does that feel like? So we have the refuges, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, and when we really understand what they are, there's something that we can tap into at any point, wherever we are. You know, at any point, no matter where you are, you can always just stop and recollect that there are people all over the planet that are interested in waking up. And just in your mind, you're in the middle of Sangha. I mean, even if you're in the middle of the desert or in the middle of a snowfield, you know, just through thinking. You know, all of your friends who are interested in waking up, the moment you think of them, you're right there with them. So cultivating that, you know, making time to go to groups, making time to sit, making space for practice, these are all incredibly helpful. And then there's the precepts. And again, you know, we have such a thing about morality. You know, it's like this idea of morality is this kind of dried up, desiccated prune, you know. You know, it's not life-giving or life-affirming. It's horrible. But, you know, the image of morality, you know, when we set up the shrine, it's the flowers that are the representation of morality, virtue. You know, a flower is not dried up and desiccated and horrible. You know, it just completely relaxes into its own innate beauty. That's the image of what is integrity, what virtue is about, you know. So again, we're, we're, we're working against this, these, these external authorities that have been imposed. And that's part of the reason why when we come up against this stuff, there's, there's not a relaxed, easeful access. But just consider what happens when, you know, when the precepts are upheld and one is committed to harmlessness, one is committed not to taking things that are not given. What happens when one's relationship with one's own sexuality is around intelligence and kindness and respect, sensitivity, friendship, rather than on pleasure, power, control, dominance? It has a big effect on one's life, and it also has a big effect on the people one's relating to. You know, consider what happens with speech. You know, there's nothing that can dismantle a community or a family faster than wrong speech in terms of 
people speaking about each other in ways which is harsh or critical or or undermining or devaluing or slanderous. And when we begin to learn how to use speech in a right way, it, it really supports safety, it supports trust, it supports a feeling of friendship. And, you know, the whole the whole thing around drugs and drink, again, it's not because it's, you know, some kind of a puritanical thing to be sober. But, I mean, look how hard it is when we stack everything in our favor, every single thing in our favor. It is still incredibly hard to be present with what is going on. So when you souse the system, you know, which completely undermines the discernment process. It's like you hardly have a chance in hell. You know, it's practical. It's not puritanical. And then just check out the renunciation precepts that we were keeping over these days and just see. You know, are there ways in which it's useful? And if so, you know, does it make sense once a month or once every six months or once every whatever, you know, to have some time where you stop eating after midday, but the other precepts are ones that are followed? Again, it's not so much because, you know, one wants to be goody-goody. It's because one wants to actually support the practice. And it's, it's a cause and effect thing. How does it support and what's the result? So that's what it's about, looking to see, you know, what actually supports. Does simplicity support? If simplicity supports, then are there ways to bring that into the life in a way that makes sense, that doesn't drive you crazy or your partner crazy or everybody else around you crazy? You know, so like in a monastery situation, it would be very common that on the full moon nights or on the half moon nights that the lay community would come to the monastery and for the day or for the afternoon or for the evening observe the eight precepts. They're not making a lifetime commitment to it. Just for a day once a week or once every two weeks or once a month or four times a year. It's just as a way of touching these things because it, for those people they found that it was, it was supportive. If it's supportive, it's good. It's not supportive, there's no need to do it. So we've got the refuges, and then we've got the precepts, and then there's a whole practice of generosity. And one of the reasons why generosity is so important is not because it benefits the person one is giving to, but because it creates direct access to one's own goodness. That's why. Direct access to one's own goodness. And so when we're navigating some of this stuff, which is so slippery or slimy or, you know, these kind of dark crevasses, the only way we can navigate that stuff is if we have access to our own goodness. We don't have ground otherwise. So the first paramita, the first virtue that was discussed in the ten paramitas is generosity. Because we need to have that ground in order to be able to do this work. So anybody who sat longer than 15 minutes on a cushion is going to know it ain't easy. 
And part of the reason this is not easy is because we're navigating things inside of ourselves that takes a lot of perseverance and a lot of tenacity, a lot of finesse, a lot of skillfulness, because it's a little bit like flypaper. You know, it sticks. Or black hole, you know, where everything turns into this dark, dense stuff. You can't navigate black hole without being harnessed to your own goodness. And, you know, for myself, you know, I was doing black hole work for quite a few years. You know, you have to be harnessed, tethered, anchored into your own goodness. And generosity is one of the ways that one can do that. And again, you know, in this culture, we think, well, if I don't give somebody a million dollars, then I'm not being generous. I don't know where we get these ideas. You know, generosity is an act of kindness, of giving, a flower, a smile, a cup of soup, a hand, a hug. It's a stick of incense. It's not measured in huge amounts. It's measured in the gesture of giving, of sharing, of making somebody else more comfortable, more easy. When we have refuges, when we have precepts or integrity, when we have generosity, then we have some ground for kindness. Metta. And the Buddha said, in all of the world system, there was no one who was more deserving of loving kindness than oneself. No one. So, you know, we have opportunities to see where we can be kind and where we're not being kind and wake up. As we have that sense of bringing forth metta, we also have the capacity to touch the suffering which is present. So there's a whole practice on investigating suffering and seeing where it is and how to soften around it and how to not make a problem out of it how to release any attachment around it. So one investigates suffering in order to understand the cause of it, in order to allow it to release. So, you know, Buddhism is not bad news. (laughs) Wet blanket, sour grapes... It's a practical way of bringing attention to where the problem is in order that one can actually allow it to release. It's about the release, not the problem. But you can't get to the release if you don't know what the problem is. And so what happens for many of us is we spend most of our lives kind of skirting over, avoiding, distracting, dispersing, and then don't find much release and wonder why. So this is about bringing attention right there, right right to the place that most of us are really quite happy to run away from. Because right there 
is where we can understand, well, what's actually going on? What's actually the problem? And when we understand what the problem is, then we can change. If we don't understand what the problem is, we can't change. So our society is completely obsessed with fault-finding and blaming, and it's all outside. There's nothing to do with me. It's him, it's her, it's the weather, it's the politicians, it's the... Endless, 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 endless. And this is all about, what is my relationship with what's going on inside? How am I relating to this inside where there's the problem? And so on that level, it's really quite amazing. Because, you know, the whole lists of suffering, birth and death and aging and sickness, that is not where the problem is. The problem is not wanting it. Having what you want, not want. Not having what you want. That's not the problem. The problem is, is your relationship with not having what you want. Or with having what you don't want. And the whole identification with the mind and body. The body is not the problem. Feeling is not the problem. Perception, mental formations, consciousness, that is not the problem. The problem is identification. Wanting it to be different. Wanting it to be otherwise. Or taking it to be me and mine. So right there is where the suffering is, and right there is where metta and compassion come in. There's a remarkable story, it's a true story. One of the monks' father committed suicide, and he was the first person who saw his father, and he killed himself in a very violent way by hanging himself. So you can just imagine, you can just imagine walking into a room and seeing your dad like that, So every time he saw his father, he went into shock. I mean, every time he thought of his father, his whole system went into shock. And this was going on for some time, and then he decided to make a special practice, which was that he made a deliberate practice of conniving up or thinking of, or, you know, it was, was, um, my father calls it, uh, malice of forethought thinking up ways to be kind to people. So when you're living in a monastery and there's 10 people or 15 people or 20 people, there's infinite number of ways to be kind to people, to take people's washing off the line before it rains, to make people a cup of tea when they come home, to put a hot water bottle in their bed when it's cold, to do their washing. I mean, there's, there's an infinite number of ways to be kind. So he would connive, conjure up, figure out ways to be kind to people and then somehow organize so that he could see their faces when they found this thing or, or this effort. And whenever he saw their faces light up with that, wow, he'd say, that's for you, Dad. That's for you, Dad. That's for you, Dad. 
the joy of seeing another person's recognition of somebody's kindness that was deliberately thought out for them, he'd say, that's for you, Dad. And in a relatively short period of time, when he started thinking of his dad, rather than going into shock, he'd have his feeling of the delight of seeing other people register the act of kindness that he had done for his father's benefit. This is changing one set of patterning into another set of patterning. Changing a negative patterning into a wholesome patterning. It's very skillful. Gladness. Taking joy in somebody else's joy and making a practice out of it. When one has a basis of kindness and has some access to the heart of compassion and understands this quality of gladness and taking joy in somebody else's joy, I think those also give some support for being able to see things in a much bigger perspective, which is what equanimity is all about. Now for me, my direct access to equanimity is through rocks. I live right next to the Garden of the Gods, and the Garden of the Gods is part of my daily practice. Those rocks are 250 million years old. And I go press my body into those rocks, and they help remind me about that quality of the earth, which is still and vast and has a feeling of timelessness to it. Everything is welcome. There ain't nothing that those rocks haven't seen. Nothing's too big for them. Nothing's too scary for them. Nothing's overwhelming for them. So when I feel rattled or agitated or I feel depleted or I feel whatever I feel, I go hang out with the rocks. And everything just settles out. It's like, oh, yeah, now I remember. So, not everybody lives five minutes away from the Garden of the Gods, so you need to find your own rocks. You need to find your own anchor that tethers you into a vast perspective that gives you the ability to hold what you need to hold, process what you need to process, feel what you need to feel, and remember, whatever it is that you're feeling has been felt millions and millions and millions of times before. It's all normal. It all belongs. So, obviously, you know, in setting this up, one of the things that's really helpful is to have some sense of, well, what priority is it to practice? The more you put effort into something, the more there's usually a benefit that comes. I remember the first few years that I was meditating and there was somebody, his name was Stuart, and he was what we would affectionately refer to as a Dhamma Bum. So he would go from retreat to retreat to retreat to retreat. He'd come back to the States and he'd work and he'd get enough money and he'd go to Asia and he'd hang out in the monastery. He'd ordain and he'd disrobe and then he'd come back and he'd work and and he'd go on three months retreats and six months retreats and I mean that was just his life. And 
I saw him in Berkeley, and he said, how are you? And I was caught in this, I don't know what kind of a spin, but uh, something going on. And it was like, and he said, yeah, it's good not to take it too seriously. And I thought, what? (laughs) I mean, on retreat, yeah, I can understand that on retreat, but this is real. (laughs) So, you know... Uh, in, to be able to understand that the reality of the practice is as much as one gives it. There's a saying that the Dhamma protects those who protect it. The Dhamma upholds those who uphold it. The more we bring this into our life, the more that it actually becomes the fabric of the way we live. So, you know, how is it for you? You know, what is your priority? I can't tell you what it's supposed to be. But certainly there are ways of supporting an increase or uh, getting more out of it. So Steve in the Dhammapunks was telling me that they have this program called Commit to Sit, where they have Dhamma buddies and they text each other. They're going to sit for half an hour, 45 minutes or an hour, and they have their buddy and they once they finish their sitting they text their buddy and say they did their sitting so that they have a commitment to sit for however much they sit and they sit for a month or two months or six months and every time they sit they text their buddy and they said that they did it so not only have they made a commitment but they've got a commitment to be accountable to their buddy about whether they did it or they didn't do it it's brilliant brilliant you know it's really helpful to partner up that way and to have ways of supporting each other to do stuff like that. So that's helpful to have things like that where it reminds us and focuses us on what our priorities are and holds us accountable to it. That's great. And so, you know, some people do really well with routine. Other people feel absolutely throttled with routine. And so if you say, well, you have to sit every day for half an hour come hell or high water, and you're the kind of person that feels completely throttled by that, that's not going to help you. So what's needed for practice is rather than fitting everybody into the same box, is to recognize, well, what actually is needed in order for your own practice to be uh, alive? Now, one of the things that happens for people is is they get a little bit fixated on what practice is. And one of the ways that people get fixated is they think it's about sitting Sitting, I have to sit. I'm going to do my sitting. I'm going to go on a retreat and sit. You know, so people spend hours sitting in front of office and on computers and looking at books and texts and, you know, 10 hours, 12 hours, 15 hours sitting and they're going to come home and sit. They don't need to sit. They need to walk. They need to stretch. They need to do some movement. They need to stand. They need to feel their feet on the earth. They need to do anything else except sit. But if you've got this idea that that's what meditation is, then you feel like, I can't meditate. Because when I come home and I sit, I feel tired, exhausted, my body hurts, I can't sit still for three minutes. Well, of course you can. Your whole system is telling me, get me out of here. is not what I need. So, 
there needs to be an intelligence that also accompanies one's commitment that one is not forcing something on top of what is needing some nourishment, encouragement, some ability to move. For me, you know, there's rocks and there's also nature, which rocks are part of. But I also feel, you know, a lot of coolness comes for me when I just go spend time, you know, where there's less density of people and things that have been manufactured and not so many power lines and my whole system kind of just relaxes in that. And so, you know, sometimes it isn't so much even just a matter of going on retreat or doing formal practice, but simplifying the external environment so that one can reconnect with one's natural energy systems, feel what they feel like. So it's a it's a rich topic, and obviously, you know, spending a half an hour, 45 minutes talking about it only just barely scratches the surface. But certainly one of the things which is really helpful is to have friends to talk this stuff through with, you know, because there's an infinite variety of challenges to navigate. And sometimes it's really helpful to speak to somebody else who has a commitment to using the path for waking up to see what they've come up with. So community, as an aspect of the path, is really important to cultivate. You know, groups or friends that you contact or, you know, Dhamma buddies that you text or people that you meet with once periodically and talk stuff through on a real level of what's really going on. You know, can be very supportive. So I think I will stop here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.